Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Greenlight Guru is committed to improving the quality of life, and now we're ready to improve the quality of education and training in the medical device industry. Greenlight Guru Academy is a comprehensive training resource for anyone looking to learn industry best practices with actionable training from industry experts. You'll get on-demand courses that allow you to move at your own pace on topics related to quality and regulatory product development, design controls, risk management, doc control. Honestly, it's too many to fit into a short ad. So if you're ready to level up your medical device education, visit greenlight.guru forward slash academy today. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is the founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And joining me on this, well, it's a pretty significant occasion, and, and I'll give you some more details about that here in a f- few moments. But recurring guest and, and good friend of mine, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. So, Mike, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to be here. It's a little bittersweet moment. You and I were chatting just briefly right before we hit the record button. You know, this this will be my last podcast with Greenlight Guru uh, as of December the 31st. I am moving on to explore other uh, adventures. I don't really know what those are going to be just yet. You've finally gotten uh, sick and tired of hanging out with this wackadoodle Drew's character. And you're, <laughs> you're moving on to bigger and better things. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe Mike Drew's will, will be part of that, those future adventures <laughs> to be determined. So stay tuned. But with that being said, you know, and I chatted with Mike the other day, like, let's do kind of a, I don't know, best of or a culmination or, you know, put a nice wrapper on this relationship that he and I have had over the past seven and a half, eight years, something like that. And, you know, I did a little bit of of digging into some of the details. Did you know that Mike Drews and I have recorded, I think if I counted correctly, 107 episodes on the Global Medical Device Podcast? Um, Amazing, John. And putting that number into perspective, I always try to give somebody a a basis of comparison for statistics like this. If you do a little bit of arithmetic, if you assume most of our podcasts were between 40 and 45 minutes each, that means that we had between 70 and 80 hours of podcasts. Or if you convert that to days, you and I have talked to each other for more than three full 24-hour days. Can you imagine, John, <laughs> if you and I sat down and talked directly for three days plus as a marathon? I think we could actually do I, it. Yeah, I think it would be fun. Yeah, I think I could actually imagine that. I mean, I, I, of course, you know, sleep <laughs> was a little important, but it's been a, a great a great relationship. And, you know, the kind of looking back and through the archives, if you will, you know, our first episode we recorded was back in April of 2015. And during those days of the global medical device part, actually even before that first episode, a couple of us at Greenlight were just kind of sitting around talking about different ideas and and brainstorming about some things. And someone I don't remember who suggested, "Hey, what do you guys think about doing a podcast?" So, uh, sure, let's do it. And and that first, I went back and listened to that first episode. That was a little rough. Uh, I'd like to say we've refined <laughs> our our approach and and delivery a great deal from then till now, but. But we were in many ways, John, not to toot our own horn here, but we were pioneers because, yeah. you know, close to a decade ago, podcasts were not nearly as common as they are today. 
Well, not just so that, but in our in our industry, pretty much unheard of. I mean, there were a few podcast episodes here and there over the years, but nothing with the recurring frequency uh, that we managed to keep up with the Global Medical Device Podcast. So, yeah, I totally. And can agree. you can you imagine from from the perspective of a of a normal person, not too regulatory and quality geeks like us? doing this for so long and most importantly having such a, a following you know I, I give you know our audience all of the credit because yeah. they seem to continue to listen to us I well, don't always know why but <laughs> but they seem to do it well I mean that's that's the great point I mean it's it's for because of all of you you know continuing to tune in and listen if you didn't do so there would be no no purpose or, or meaning or reason for us to continue to do this over the years so thank you all for for continuing to tune in and course hopefully you've continued to tune in to global medical device podcast episodes that do not feature john and mike uh, there's still quite a few out there so check that out i know etienne nichols has been doing a fantastic job uh carrying that torch further so uh keep up uh, on the listening and spreading the word so you know one of the other couple other things that i jotted down you know we ad actually added video to our podcast back uh, a little about a year and a half ago so i think that was a nice addition i mean uh, you know, it's always great to see your face, uh, Mike, when we're chatting one on one and our geographic locations make that a little bit dif difficult to do that in the same room at the same time. So the video has been a nice addition, at least from my perspective. Well, I, I appreciate your kind words, John, as I just reminded one of my customers earlier today in a video conference, my son, who is actually in broadcast journalism, he tells me I have a face for radio. <laughs> so, <laughs> But on a more serious note, FDA did announce their new policy just about yeah. a month ago regarding, quote unquote, in-person meetings. And one of the things that they said was you have to have your videos turned on. Well, long story short, John, I just did a pre-sub with FDA just last week. This was several weeks after this new policy came out, and several of the reviewers had their videos turned off. Mm. And when I said, are you familiar with this new policy? They said, yeah, that new policy is optional. So it's like... <laughs> Sorry, I choked on my water. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well. uh, welcome to my world. Yeah, well, <laughs> but um, I'm old fashioned in the sense that kind of like you, I like to see people when when I'm talking to them, not just for personal reasons, but yeah. because so much of communication is nonverbal. Non yeah, 100 percent. I mean, I I know a lot of st statistics are made up, but I think I heard once like something like 80 percent of communication is nonverbal. So. Uh, yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised, John, if you hadn't heard that from me, because this yeah. is one of our many recurring themes that yeah. you and I have talked about over the last 107 episodes. Absolutely. So, yeah. The uh, the other thing, and some folks may not realize sort of how you and I uh, came to meet one another. I think that's always a great story. Um, and if if you're curious uh, to, to listen to a more in-depth uh, conversation about that. I think we we talked about that in episode uh, number one sixty one, uh, sort of the genesis of of uh, Mike Drews and, and John Spear. But I'll give you the recap. Um, this was early days of of Greenlight Guru, and you know I had of course been in the industry for quite a bit before that. Mike as well, and I was you know consuming all this content, articles, information that's being published through the various channels and, and outlets and things. And I came across an article that as I read it uh, at the time, I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is, this is, I don't agree with all these points of view. And, you know, heresy. I, <laughs> well, I wouldn't go far, as far as say heresy, but I didn't agree with all the points of view. So I, you know, fired up my computer. Uh, I wrote a, uh, 
I guess, an editorial or op-ed piece uh, in response to that. And, um, you know, the the person who wrote the original article uh, reached out to me and said, hey, let's get on a call. Well, that, that person was Mike Drews. And, you know, I think in this, especially in this day and age, what I appreciated about that moment, Mike, is we didn't see eye to eye on everything. In fact, over the years, if you've been a listener to the podcast, you know, we, we share more in common probably than we don't. But there are some things that, you know, we don't agree with or we're not 100% on the same page about. But, you know, what I love about our relationship is we can have civil conversations and discussions about this. And I think hopefully folks listening can apply that to their everyday lives because, man, right now in this day and age, it, it feels like if you don't agree with somebody, you have to fight them. And that's just silly. That's just really silly. So, John, thank you for reminding everybody of that story, just for the benefit of our audience that are not familiar with it, add just a tiny bit more color to that. And I do suggest listening to that episode that John just highlighted a moment ago, where we go into more detail. But as I recall, John, the essence of my my column that you responded to was on the design controls. Yeah. And as a matter of record, you know, I don't think there's anybody that knows more about the design controls than you do. And one of the premises that I tried to make in that in that uh, column was when the design controls or indeed when the rules make sense, then we should follow them. Right. But if the rules don't make sense and we follow them anyway and we agree that they don't make sense and yet we follow them anyway, is that a problem with the system or is that a problem with us? Right. And John, I, I put this word in your mouth, but I did so on purposely. Many people, and I think you you illustrated this a moment ago, you viewed this as heresy. You know, don't follow this guy saying don't follow the rules. <laughs> and so I reached out to John, and to his credit, we had a, a discussion, and it turned out that although, as John said, we didn't agree on every single thing, we agree on lots of things, and that's what sort of you know led to almost yeah. ten years later and 107 episodes later, yeah. not to mention how many webinars and everything else, joint presentations at conferences and so on. So yeah, I think that's an interesting story. And it's another of the many recurring themes that you and I have talked about over the years, at least from my perspective, when the rules make sense, follow them. But when they don't make sense, should we follow them? No, I don't think we should, but many companies do. Or should we work with the FDA and try to figure out a, a way that does make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I can remember my mindset as a medical device professional at that point in time, just prior to, to meeting with you and probably even a, a few months after uh, we became friends and you know talked on a frequent basis, I was pretty narrow-minded uh, and pretty narrowly um, uh, focused when it came to dealing with regulators and FDA and that sort of thing. And, and, I, and I, I, I'm thankful that because of uh, in large part of, of exposure to your thoughts and ideas and working with you, that I've been able to sort of open my horizons. And, and I hope listeners have had that same opportunity over the years. You know, this isn't a black and white world that we live in and, and med device and FDA regulations and you know other regulations from, from other regulatory bodies around the world. It's not black and white. You know, there's a ton left up to interpretation, but don't just follow blindly, you know. And and I and I appreciate, you know, being able to to uh, learn these sort of lessons and and different mindsets and approaches uh, from our interactions. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. And, you know, I would say that nothing in the regulatory or the quality world is, is black and white. There's an yeah. infinite number of shades of gray. And in my opinion, it's in those shades of gray 
that are really the advantages for us because we can interpret, to use the, the proper word, interpret the regulation uh, in the way that we think is appropriate given our circumstances, given our goals, our technology, our risks, and, and, and so on and so on. As I often say, and I've said it in many of our discussions before, regulation is about two things. It's about the interpretation of words and our ability to defend our interpretation. There are almost an infinite number of ways that anybody can interpret a particular set of words. And I find it fascinating how so many people seem to think that the way that the FDA interprets a set of words is the only way or the best way to interpret them. When my interpretation is consistent with FDA, then great. But if my interpretation is different, then I will be the first to go to FDA and say, hey, here's what the words say. Here's what the regulation says. And this is why my particular interpretation is important. In my opinion, John, that's exactly the way this game is supposed to be played. Because as I'm sure many in our audience remember, you know, coming from a medical background, and I used to teach med school back in the day, I use a lot of med medical metaphors. You know the adage, John, the surgery went perfectly, but the patient died anyway. Well, the regulatory equivalent, you've heard it many times before, the regulatory equivalent, we followed the regulation perfectly. That is, we did all that FDA or Health Canada, whoever asked us to do, we did all that FDA asked us to do, and yet the patient died anyway. Yeah. Unfortunately, these things happen more frequently than some people would like to admit. Yeah, absolutely. So as Mike and I prepared for our discussion today, one of the things that we talked about doing is sort of a... Um, I guess, a synopsis or a summary, if you will, of of sort of some themes and maybe some of our favorite moments uh, over the years uh, in doing the Global Medical Device podcast, as well as, as Mike mentioned, numerous webinars and, and other speaking engagements. And so I have a list of, of a few of my favorite podcasts that we've done with one another. And I know Mike's got a few uh, themes that he's identified as, you know, reflecting back over the years. So maybe I'll start and just dive in and and I'll talk about uh, one of my favorite episodes that we did together. And then I'll throw it to you and you know, we can kind of go play a little game of, of uh, medical device, regulatory quality nerd <laughs> ping pong. Or whatever. <laughs> I think that would be great, John. And before you share your first one, sure. I just wanted to tell our audience uh, to give my friend John Spear a little bit of credit here. When John and I spoke a few days ago to talk about how we were going to you know, organize this last podcast discussion, I was the one that suggested, well, why don't each of us you know, pick our top five or so podcasts of those 107? And just a few minutes before we started the recording, I threw my friend John an audible. I said, I want to change the, the play. <laughs> you know, you come up with your top five uh, podcasts and I'll come up with my top five recurring themes or lessons right. to be learned. Because it was very difficult, probably impossible for me to yeah. identify top my top five favorite podcasts, because it's kind of like asking me, what is my favorite regulatory pathway to market? 510K, <laughs> HDE, PMA. I like all of them for different reasons. It's right. kind of like asking a parent to choose their favorite child, right? So I think this is going to be an interesting and hopefully a fun discussion, John. Why don't you start it out? Yeah, sure. And, and I think as I describe each of my five favorite episodes, there is a theme. For sure. But let's, let's just dive in. So my first one on my list was one we recorded relatively recently. It was episode 291. It's called Developing a Regulatory Strategy. And folks, all the links that I mentioned to different episodes, uh, we'll be sure to, to hopefully get those into the show notes so you can you know easily click those and go right to them without having to search. But episode 291, Developing a Regulatory Strategy. And this was you know far from the first time that, that Mike and I spoke about 
the importance of a regulatory strategy. Uh, I, I picked this one in particular because um, I think there was a, 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 an amount of clarity, at least for me, in, in this topic. I, I think, you know, prior to meeting Mike, uh, I was big on thinking that I was a strategic person, especially when it came to regulatory. And I'm, in fact, I can probably pull up uh, a handful of examples of documents that I created back in the day that I titled, quote, regulatory strategy documents. And basically, when I look at those documents, they they just alliterated or, or enumerated the different pathways that I was going to choose, you know, whether it was 510K or, you know, a tech file in, in EU or, or whatever the case may be. And I think this is a really, really important topic for, for med device professionals to understand is your submission is not your strategy, you know. So I, that's why I chose that particular one. And again, that's for me, I, looking back over the 107 episodes, we probably talked about the uh, variations of this topic a handful, easily a handful of times. So what about you? What what was one of the, the themes that you picked up from the conversation? So my corresponding theme to your regulatory strategy podcast reference there is my poker metaphor. Yeah. Because like you, John, I get frustrated when I ask people, what is your regulatory strategy? And they say 510K. That's not a strategy. That's an end goal, but that's not a strategy in how you get there. As you've heard me characterize many, many times, John, I characterize the entire relationship between the company and the FDA as a poker game in every sense of the word, talking about strategy. And just because you know the rules of poker doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good poker player. It doesn't mean that you're going to win the game. I want to do everything that I can, legal, of course. I don't want to be wearing any orange jumpsuits in order to win the game. In other words, you can read 50 books on the rules of poker. Does that mean that you're going to be a good poker player? Does that mean that you're going to win the game? Absolutely not. Two players can be holding exactly the same cards in their hand, and yet one will win and the other will lose. So it's not just about knowing the cards in your hand. Yeah, you have to know them. But as the song goes, you have to know when to hold them and when to fold them and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So this is this is the equivalent, substantially equivalent, perhaps, John, to your, you know, pick up on one of your favorite topics of podcast discussion is regulatory strategy. That's my lesson to be learned from that. All right. All right. Let's move right along. So my next podcast that I picked out is episode 86. And the title of this episode is FDA Plans to Modernize 510K. The reason I picked this one out is, you know, gosh, I think even, well, 510K has been around, I think it was 1976 when that came out, if I recall. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but um, I no, think... No, that's correct. And, and I, if, I think if, I, if the story I heard about the 510K process is accurate, it was never intended to be a a mechanism or a pathway that was permanent, but yet, you know, pretty much probably 90 plus percent of medical device professionals are younger than the 510K provision, you know, of 1976. It, it, it's been around for a long period of time, and I'm not saying it's it's timeless per se, but the topic of 510K reform has been consistent pretty much throughout my entire career. And and I think it's interesting that from time to time, you know, we'll get a new guidance or a new spin or a new take from FDA on a, on a variation of a 510K or a, a, quote, new type of 510K and whatnot. But all in all, a 510K that continues to be the workhorse of the med device industry, at least, you know, when you're bringing products to market in the FDA. So while there's talk of reform, 
it seems like that's something that's probably is going to stick around for for quite some time. Well, I would agree, John. There's been a lot of talk of reform and talk and talk and talk for nearly a half a century since, in fact, the 510K was created in 1976. And by the way, John, you made reference to something that I think a lot of our listeners may not be aware of, and that is one of the former FDA commissioners, David Kessler, who was uh, one of my former bosses years ago, who was uh, commissioner at FDA for most of the decade of the 90s. He said very famously or infamously that the 510k pathway provision was meant to be an exception rather than the rule, an exception rather than the rule when it was originally created in 1976. And fast forward to now 2022, almost 2023, as you and your audience know, John, now it's become the rule rather than the exception. So it was never intended to to be that way. Um, And so my sort of corresponding lesson to be learned is is a little bit more broad than that. And that is, don't just simply focus on the letter of the law. In other words, what does the regulation say in the literal sense? Try to focus and understand and apply the spirit of the law, the philosophy of the law. So many times I see companies, both on the regulatory side as well as on the quality side, they get in trouble because they're focusing on the letter of the law, but not on the spirit of the law. And remember, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, John, that famous adage, the surgery went perfectly, but the patient died anyway. Well, the regulatory or the quality equivalent is we followed the regulation perfectly. That is, we did all that FDA that, that FDA asked us to do, and yet the patient died anyway. And in terms of wrapping up the theme on the 510K, the only significant change to the 510K really in the last few years anyway, and if you want to consider this to be a significant change, I'll leave that up to our audience to decide, is the formation of what's called the Safety and Performance or SP510K, which in my opinion, John, is really nothing new. It's substantially equivalent, pun intended, to the abbreviated 510K, which has been around for a very, very long time, about almost 25 years now. But those are some of the themes, the things that I would remind the, the audience to keep in when, when they talk about uh, changing of the 510K or any regulation in general. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just one other thought about you know sort of that topic in general. I mean, back when we recorded that episode, I should have looked at or written down the date. I don't remember, but eighty episode eighty six tells me it was probably I don't know five years ago or so. I recall in that moment in time, it seemed like you know it, there was a lot of pressure or political pressure. Uh, I don't remember what was entirely going on at the world in at that time, but. You know, FDA, it, it seemed as though there was some knee-jerk response from FDA, like they had to be part of the narrative, and, and so things didn't spin out of control. So, um, and, I, and I think that's an interesting thing. I mean, sort of a side point, we can we can riff on here for a moment if you'd like, but, you know, in, in the time that you and I have, have uh, been doing this, I've seen the FDA be much more engaging and much more interactive than maybe they did in, in the 10 or 20 years prior to that. And I think that's a good thing for us in industry, too. Well, in terms of politics, John, I think you you said it politely. I'll go a little more. I don't think there was anything except politics. Yeah. I think the politics was was largely, if not completely, the the driving factor for the the formation of this quote unquote new five ten k pathway. And when I say politics here, it's you know the competition, the friendly competition, if you will, between the U.S. and the EU, and mm-hmm. which products come onto the market. Uh, first and, and and so on and so on. And as an aside note, John, it's not one of the 
recurring themes that I did in advance, but it's one that I'm thinking about now. It's amazing to me how many people they try to separate regulation from fo- from politics, because to me that makes absolutely no sense. Where right. does the regulation come from? It comes from the politicians, right. right? So to separate the regulation and politics doesn't make sense. That's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's not a criticism, but it's a it's a reality. So why shouldn't people just say, you know what, regulation, just like most things, is, is there is a political component to it? I don't I don't think you know. I don't know why people are hesitant to go that far, but that's my two bits, John. By the way, I think you and I will never have a career in politics because we've got (laughs) too much of an established history. There's too many podcasts floating around out there that somebody could use to our disadvantage. (laughs) Well, you know, maybe maybe we'll find uh, a a geographic, a chunk of land somewhere where we can establish our own our own uh, sovereignty or something, but anyway. Or where they don't have internet access, one or the other. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so my my next podcast that I wanted to chat a little bit about was episode 101, and the title of this one was How to Make De Novo a Viable Option. And I picked this one in particular because I think, you know, my medical device life before... uh, getting to know Mike Drews and, you know, understanding some of the, the, uh, I don't know, nuances and intricacies and benefits of these different pathways. I, I, you know, I was sort of that tunnel vision, you know, I, I looked at 510Ks and I probably didn't look at a lot of other pathways. In fact, some companies that I worked for uh, once upon a time, if we determined that the product we were exploring or considering developing was going to be a class three and require a PMA. It was almost it almost meant kill the project, move on. And and um, I, I think that that's a short sighted way of looking at things. And in specific to De Novo, I, I remember quite a few years ago, uh, I was doing some work with a startup company, and they their product they pursued a De Novo uh, pathway for the product. And at that point in time, or in 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 the history of of the De Novo provision it was kind of a kiss of death for them i mean it their submission went into a black hole i mean i can't remember how long it took uh and, and there was very little dialogue or or, or uh, communication with the fda they they were sort of stuck right and i think that's sort of what de novo used to be once upon a time not that long ago um but i've been encouraged through my conversations with mike over the years that you know folks should really Look at de novo as as a a very viable and and progressive type of submission pathway. You know, don't don't look at it as a negative. So, I know FDA and 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 folks like Mike Drews have really helped that de novo uh, pathway uh, become more popular than it used to be. So, anyway, I wanted to well, highlight that because I think it's important for folks. This is a way to be new and refreshing and exciting versus just being a me too. I agree, John. Thank you for highlighting that podcast. And I think to be fair to us, we've done several podcasts on the de novo, either directly or indirectly. And in fact, for our audience, I did uh, one of the many uh, webinars that I've done for Greenlight over the years. One of my most popular webinars, in fact, was a webinar specifically on the de novo. So if this is something that you're interested in or want to know more about, I would encourage you to check out those resources. But that brings me to my next recurring theme, John, John, along those lines. And that is know what all of your options are. 
mm-hmm. not just the most common one. I mentioned earlier, you know, usually the first question that I ask to new customers is what's your regulatory strategy? And more often than not, they'll tell me 510K. And as we talked about a moment ago, that's not a regulatory strategy. And then the second question I usually ask them is, well, why 510K? And a surprising number of times, John, they'll say, Mike, did I have another option? <laughs> you know, so, so you need to know what all of your options are and not to go too much into detail uh, on the de novo, because as we've said, there's a lot of other resources that John and I have put out there specifically on the de novo, but there are some very significant advantages, including competitive advantages of the de novo over the 510K. You know, the 510K, without a doubt, is the workhorse here in the medical device industry in the United States, no question about it. The question is, why is it the workhorse? A lot of people think it's because it's the only way or the best way. Not necessarily. You know, the metaphor that I like to use, John, and you've heard me use this before, McDonald's is one of the most successful restaurants in the world. Is it because they make a good hamburger? Not so much. Just because a lot of people go to McDonald's doesn't mean that it's a good restaurant. Just because a lot of people use the 510K doesn't necessarily mean it's your best or certainly your only pathway to market. So know what all of your different options are, not just in the class two or below universe, 510K or de novo, but the HDE, the PMA, the uh, CDE, the customer device device exemption, the emergency use authorization. Um, I did another of my most uh, popular webinars for Greenlight was on the pathways to market, where I describe all of the different pathways yes, and the right. sub-pathways as well. And if you look at all of those different options, John, the number of ways that we have to get medical devices onto the market here in the United States is north of 20, depending on how you count, between 20 and 30 different pathways with all of the different options and the sub-options. So you have to know all of your different options. Otherwise, quite frankly, how can you decide which option is best to, for you? you in your particular circumstances. In other words, how can you do your job? So recurring theme number theme for me is no number three for me is know all of your options, not just the common, not just the vanilla flavored, but all of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the next podcast I wanted to highlight was episode number 234. And this one was called setting the record straight on usability and human factors. And uh, as Mike mentioned about the de novo topic, I mean, it wasn't the only time he and I spoke about that. Well, episode 234 was not the only time Mike and I talked about usability and human factors. But I wanted to highlight this one because, you know, it's it's not really surprising. Well, it's kind of surprising, I guess, to me that in here at the end of 2022, that so many in industry are still so damn confused about usability and human factors. And I mean, I started my career in in this industry in the late 90s. And the regulations as we know them today in the US were, you know, for all intents and purposes, new, if you will, at that time. And this concept of design controls, you know, was a little mm, befuddling for a lot of product developers. Uh, for me, I just like it made perfect sense. Oh, I get to de- I have to define uh, what's important to the user of this product. I have to define the requirements of this product. I have to prove that it works uh, the way I designed it. I have to prove that that it works the way it's supposed to uh, in at point of use and all these sorts of things. And to me, you know, that's 
in essence, you know, human factors and usability. I have to, I have to know that my product is going to work the way I said it was going to by the people who are supposed to use it when they're supposed to use all, you know, all these sorts of things. And why this is so confusing, I have no idea. I mean, I have, I could speculate. I, I think it seems like, you know, design controls has become its sort of own thing. And then there's this other thing called risk management that's sort of an offshoot of that. And there's this other thing called human factors or usability that, that seems to be an offshoot of, of that yet still. And like people, stop the madness. These are all the same thing. Maybe there's slightly different views or perspectives, but folks, we still have, this industry still has a huge, huge uh learning curve sadly when it comes to usability and human factors so i wanted to highlight this episode and hopefully you all will go listen to that and hopefully there's some light bulbs that'll turn on and and hopefully we can get out of this madness (laughs) well again thank you for highlighting that usability episode john the corresponding recurring theme that i would identify that uh applies to human factors or usability but it also applies to other things and that is you can't anticipate all questions or problems, but you can certainly anticipate many of them. In the 30 years that I've been playing this game, this is one of the many lessons that I've learned. You can't anticipate all questions or problems, but you can anticipate many of them. And when it comes to usability, it fascinates me, John, how we have now such regulation, such requirements on usability testing, and yet we still continue to have usability-related issues in medical devices in the real world. And this this is something that I talked about a lot in my webinar that I did for Greenlight, specifically on usability testing. I think that the root cause of this problem, to put this in engineering terms, because as our audience knows, you know, my background is in biomedical engineering. That's what my PhD is in. The root cause of this problem is although we do usability testing, usually before the product is 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 cleared or approved and on the market, it's done in such a controlled, such a con- kind of contrived way that it's not realistic of the real world. And just as one quick example, and I've shared this story with uh, in some of our podcasts before, so it might sound familiar, but I think it's it's uh, bears uh, repeating. I was doing a presentation at a conference a couple of years ago, and coincidentally, the woman that was presenting at the conference be- uh, just before me was talking about the usability study that she did for a laparoscopic device. And one of the things that she said was that the surgeon Surgeon had to use and follow the DFU, the directions for use. And well, you you're laughing, John, so you know where I'm going with this. But for the benefit of the audience, I wanted to have a public discussion on this. I said at the end of her presentation, I said I, I, I posed her the question or the or the the statement rather. Well, you realize now that you have totally invalidated completely invalidated your usability testing here because we all know that in the real world, nobody or certainly very, very, very few people do that. And she responded to me, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, yes, Mike, I agree with you 100%, but it, it passed mustard at the FDA. <laughs> so what good is doing usability testing or a clinical trial or indeed any kind of a testing if it's not realistic of the real world? Right. So my advice, somewhat facetiously, but also seriously, my advice to companies when they want to do usability testing, my you know, you know, my usability testing protocol is very simple. It's only two steps. Give your device to the to the user, to the surgeon, physician, nurse, patient, whoever's going to use it. Give it to the user. And then, as my wife would say, step two, you can stop talking now. 
Yeah. And just simply observe what they do with it. And if they take your DFU out of the box and throw it right into the trash, then you note that down. Now, as you know, John, in the real world, no company is ever going to want to do a usability study like that for all the obvious reasons. But it begs the question, what good is doing testing if it's not realistic of what we do in the something to think about i mean and and you know continuing on that topic for for a little bit i think i I think it's not that deep uh to be honest i mean i i I mean it's important don't mishear me but i think we'd complicate this topic way way too much i mean if we followed your two-step protocol that's pretty simple john (laughs) i wonder you know how how what would we learn from that if we just (laughs) handed it to somebody and then shut up you know and just watched I don't know. Something. I think we would learn a lot. (laughs) I think we would learn a ton. Absolutely. All right. So we're, uh, you know, as they say, uh, round and third and maybe working our way toward home a little bit. So my last podcast that I highlighted uh, for for today's conversation was episode number 140. And this was recorded back in April of 2020. And it was on the emergency use authorization and two things that, that I wanted to highlight about that. I'll, I'll con- confess, prior to you know that period of time, um, I don't think I ever heard of or was aware of an EUA and what that was and, and, and that sort of thing. You know, granted, it would not surprise me, John. As a matter of fact, that was commonplace for most people in the yeah. medical device industry at that time. In yeah. the drug and the biologic world, people did have experience with the EUA for you know some of the 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 other uh, um, uh, infectious disease pandemics, but not in the medical device world. Yeah, the other uh, thing that that I'm a little bit proud of, uh, you know, throughout the years that Mike and I have have, have uh, the topics we've discussed, and this is a, a pretty good example of that. Is you know, we were one of the first, we, we were the first, some of the first people to talk about this topic, um, and. Um, you know, this was April of 2020. I mean, I know specifically like our offices, you know, we, we shut our offices down in person. I think it was March the 13th, 2020. So just a couple weeks later, you and I published a, a podcast on this particular topic. And, and you know, we talked about it a few times, uh, after that as well. But I, I think that, you know, we were sort of blazing the path. I think we were trying to help educate and inform folks of, of, and teach them what EUA is and how, you know, this could be beneficial to some of the things that they're working on. And at the same time, be beneficial uh, to helping uh, address some of the needs in the pandemic. So anyway, that was my, my final podcast that I wanted to highlight. And I'm extremely proud of the fact, as you just pointed out, John, that with regard to the emergency use authorization, but with regard to other examples as well, You and I are among the first, or in some cases, the very first people to start talking about these things. As a matter of fact, we did uh, not only that podcast, John, but at that same time, I did a full webinar for Greenlight, uh, a detailed analysis, uh, a presentation of the emergency use authorization. Um, One of my frustrations with a lot of folks today that do uh, podcasts and webinars is they're not telling me anything that, you know, hasn't been around for quite a long time. And when you put yourself out there as, you know, the first or one of the first to talk about something, uh, you know, that sets you set up apart from the crowd. You know, we are in that regard, John, I don't mean to be arrogant here, but I think, you know, we should take credit. We are sheep. You know, we are not shepherds. We're, you know, in large ways leading the flock. We're not, you know, following along like like everybody else. And 
fast forward to today with regard to the to the EUA, many of the things that I said, not just in that podcast, John, but in the webinar that I did for Greenlight on the EUA, many of those things were adopted by the FDA almost three years later in I their know. final guidances <laughs> as we transition to the post-COVID world. Yeah. Right. So I so I think you and I should both be very proud of that. And to wrap this up, John, my my final recurring theme, kind of along the, the lines of the EUA, is um communication with the FDA. As you and I have talked about so many times before, uh, there's no bigger fan of communication with the FDA than, than me. I will communicate with the FDA far more frequently than any regulation will require me to do. But remember my big caveat, John, this is my one of my regulatory mantras, and that is tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. Yeah. As you and, and many in our audience know, in addition to consulting for companies, I also work as a consultant for the FDA as well as Health Canada. So I, I see a lot of these issues from both sides. It never ceases to amaze me, John, how many people I see come into FDA's door and literally ask them, ask FDA, what do I do? How do I bring this product onto the market? Will you tell me, is it a 510K or a de novo? Will you tell me, do you need? Do I need to do a clinical trial. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it amazes me how many people do this. And I think this is terrible strategy, John, for a whole bunch of reasons. First of all, it's not FDA's job to tell us what to do. It's our job to figure out what to do and then to go to the FDA and sell it to them. And the other reason why I think it's terrible strategy, John, is because you're opening up a Pandora's box and yeah. you have no idea what you're going to get in return. If you ask that, and some of you might be thinking this is a hypothetical, but it's not. I see it all the time. If you ask FDA, do I need to do a clinical, do a clinical trial? What do you yes. think they're going to Say, of course, you have to do a clinical trial, and you want, and we want to see ten million people. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, so de-risk your your submission and your your product for them, and and that, uh, yeah. So exactly yeah. correct. So on one hand, communicate with the FDA, but on the other hand, tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. In other words, go into the FDA very, very confidently and say, look, here's my device. This is what it does. This is how it works. This is the mechanism of action. This is the testing that we're going to do on it. And this is the testing that we're not going to do on it and why. We're going to bring it onto the market as a 510K and here are the reasons why, or as a de novo, and here's the reasons why. We're going to do a clinical trial and here's the reasons why, or we're not going to do a clinical trial and here's the reasons why. In other words, you lay all of your tables on the, uh, sorry, you lay all of your cards on the table. There's that poker metaphor. And then FDA says one of two things. They say, oh, great, John, that, sound, that sounds terrific. We look forward to seeing your submission in a few months. Or they'll say, oh, hold on a second, John. We don't quite see it that way. And that's when the poker, be begin, poker game begins. So communicate with the FDA, whether it's with an EUA or, or anything else. Um, but remember that caveat, tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. Yeah. Wow, Mike, I never thought that we would have after that first episode that we did all those years ago <laughs> that, um, that you and I would have, uh, you know, personally recorded another hundred plus episodes, you know, uh, it's been, it's been awesome. And, and, uh, you know, I would say the same thing. As a matter of fact, if, if, you know, in hindsight, if somebody said you would have, you know, you, you're going to record a hundred plus episodes, I would say, give me some of whatever it is you're smoking. You must be <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and here's the, the the last thing and perhaps the most important thing that I would like our audience to remember after our 100 plus episodes and webinars and everything else together. Regulation aside, you know, everything else aside, would you swallow the pill 
or would you have the medical yeah. device used in yourself or a family member? At the end of the day, that's the most important thing. You know, probably the most common question I get from people, I get this question from, from people in companies every week, sometimes every single day. Companies say to me, Mike, you work with lots of different companies. You also work as a consultant for the FDA. If we came to the FDA with our new widget, what do you think FDA is going to want to see in terms of benchtop testing, animal testing, clinical testing, whatever? I said, I say to them, look, I say, understand why this is an important question question and why you're asking me this question, but let's look at this in a different way. Let's completely remove FDA from the equation. Let's pretend that they do not exist. Sooner or later, a family member, a friend, perhaps your spouse, your child, yourself, or in my case, my seven-year-old grandson might be on the receiving end of your medical device. Uh, when that day occurs, what would you, John, or what would me, Mike, or whoever want to see to put our own personal stamp of Endorsement. I don't want to say, you know, approval, clearance, whatever. That's just, you know, legal verbiage. But your personal stamp of endorsement to say that this product is okay to use in my spouse, in myself, or maybe even in my seven-year-old grandson. Then and only then should we go to the FDA and have an intelligent conversation about what is necessary to be done in order to bring this product onto the market. That's a very different kind of an approach, but it's my approach. In my opinion, John, maybe I'm naive. I think it makes a lot of sense. But that's one thing, perhaps the single most important thing that I would like our audience to remember after these, you know, 30 or 40 hours of talking that you and I have done yeah. over the years. Uh, and that's just the stuff that we put out there that's publicly available. That's not the private stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what I would leave our audience with, John, is, a, is one final thought. Yeah, 100%. And, and, you know, if I were to have a final thought, it's very much um, in alignment with that. And, you know, I, I had a moment early in my career where, um, well, let's just say prior to, to this moment in time, uh, I had a cool job. I got to design medical devices, and it was a lot of fun. But I, the, the gravity and the magnitude of what I was doing was lost on me at that point in time. And I had a moment where I, got, I was present for the first ever human clinical use of a device that I had designed and developed. I was there. And, and it hit me like, oh, crap. Uh, did I do this? Did I do that? Yeah, you know, I was going through and questioning, you know, all the things that I did and didn't do on my head. And I had a panic moment. And and I, I think that was really good for me as a person, but also uh, fantastic for me professionally, because I, I had that, that realization that what I do as a medical device professional has an impact on the quality of life. And I want it to be a positive impact. Every one of us in this industry should understand the the gravity and the magnitude and the importance of what we're doing as medical device professionals. As Mike said, would you use this on yourself? You know, are you improving the quality of life of humanity through your your efforts as a medical device professional? And if you can't, if you wouldn't be willing for your product to be used on yourself or someone that you love, and you're not improving the quality of life, then please do all all of us a favor and get out of the industry and go to something else. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that was a wonderful sentiment. Very well yeah. said, John. And in many cases, you're right. It's trying to improve the quality of life. But in some cases, for those of us that work in the class three universe, it's just simply life or death. Yeah. In other words, if you do your job correctly, the patient lives. If you don't do your job correctly, the patient dies. Absolutely. That's pretty black and white. I know I said earlier, there's nothing black and white, but that's pretty, that's pretty black, black and white, life or death. 
yeah. know, so this is, as I say many times, this is high stakes bingo. You know, we're not designing, you know, widgets, you know, that if it, if it breaks, it's an inconvenience, you throw it away, you get a new one. But in the medical device world, often that's the, the stakes yeah. are much higher than that. Absolutely. Well, Mike, again, it's been a blast. Uh, thank you. I've enjoyed all these times we've, we've had together. And folks, thank all of you. I mean, as as Mike and I mentioned earlier, you know, if, if you guys didn't keep listening, we wouldn't have kept talking, you know, for all these years. But, you know, it's been great to meet uh, quite a few folks in person, face-to-face uh, at events uh, and, and whatnot over the years. You know, and when somebody comes up to you and like, you know, hey, I love when you and Mike talk about blah, blah, whatever the topic might be. I mean, that's, it's it's weird to be honest it's a little weird <laughs> but it's cool at the same time that we've had you know a little bit of an impact and influence on some of the things that are being talked about in our industry and and i i see i've seen so many um positive things about this industry i, I love the medical device industry and you know it's it's keep doing the good work you know as much as we talk about the errors and the follies over the years at the same time there's a lot of terrific things that you all are doing so keep up the great work and and you know i'll be paying attention from home or wherever i'm at whatever my next adventure takes me to to see what's new and exciting in the medical device industry so i'm looking forward to hearing about those stories so thank you all well john i would just like to echo those sentiments exactly i want to thank you for being willing to participate in all of these discussions. As you pointed out in the beginning, we agree on many things, but we don't agree on everything. And I think that's partly why our discussions are listened to by so many people, because when you have people that are just talking about the easy stuff or people that are talking about stuff that everybody agrees on, quite frankly, that's boring. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like why in politics, when you have a debate between two different people with differing views, it's interesting to listen. And you're like a tennis game. You watch the ball go go back and forth. So thank you to you, John, professionally, as well as personally for for putting up with all of my, you know, <laughs> wackadoodleness. It is kind of strange to, to to get people. I never thought, you know, we would have fans, but, you know, we both have been <laughs> at places and people have come up to us. Hey, are you the guy from that podcast? Or whatever? And I also want to thank, you know, the Greenlight family for hosting all of this and for handling all of the behind the scenes kind of stuff of, you know, the organization and, oh, and, and all that. I know it's it's not glamorous, but it's, you know, somebody needs to do that. So thank you, Greenlight, for doing all of that. And I'll still be working in this business. So feel free to continue Absolutely. to reach out to me if, you know, if there's anything I can do to help. Absolutely. So. All right, y'all. Maybe we'll cross paths somewhere along the way and you see me out and about and be sure to say hello. Maybe we can grab a beer and, and sit down and have a chat. So thank you all. Uh, again, this is John Spear, founder at Greenlight Guru, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. The medical device industry is nothing if not unique. So we built software that works the same way. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management system designed by medical device professionals to meet the unique needs of medical device companies. Our cloud-based platform allows companies to bring safer products to market up to three times faster while reducing risk and lowering cost. Visit www.greenlight.guru today to request your free personalized demo of Greenlight Guru.